And welcome everyone to another episode of the Weekly Coop. Got my therapist on today. Super excited for that. She wrote the book Alcohol Made Me Do It. And she does EMDR therapy as, along with talk therapy. Amy can amyturkcounseling.com. That's her website. Her book Alcohol Made Me Do It is on Amazon. Her TikTok is Amy Turk Counseling as well. Um, she is brilliant and I'm really excited just to talk about therapy, dating, EMDR, just kind of go through a a myriad of topics in a very short period of time, even though it was an hour, I wish, uh, (laughs) I wish I had two hours with her because we definitely could have talked about so many different things, but it was really awesome to be able to get her to fit this into her schedule and to promote herself. So. That being said, um, feedery.org, sign up for our app launch. Uh, We got an application coming to influencers, people that want to be influencers on our app. We're going to have an ambassador program, so really excited to roll that out here soon. Um, Check out our NFT project on OpenSea, Culinary Creatures. Join our Discord, Culinary Creatures NFT. Um, And yeah. That's um, that's really all I got. Uh, Liquid IV, still doing that. Promo code is SCOOP. And yeah, hopefully I'll get some program ads eventually in here for some conscious brands. So if you are a conscious brand or you have a conscious brand that you want to promote in this podcast, I would love to open up that conversation. And if you are a business owner that wants to be interviewed to promote yourself, reach out to me, um, Conscious Coop on Instagram and TikTok. Those are kind of my biggest platform forms in terms of presence. So yeah, that being said, guys, let's get after it. To another episode of the Weekly Coop. I finally got uh, this person that I've been excited to get on here for a long time, so I'm glad I finally got it scheduled for once. But uh, this is my therapist, Amy Turk. Uh, she is Amy Turk Consulting, and I see her every Friday. And we have done a lot over the past like year, I would say. Um, it's been been a hell of a journey for both of us um it's almost like a friendship i feel like at this point not just like a transactional like therapist like relationship so it's it's really cool to um make a connection like this um i've never had a connection like this with a therapist before uh so it's it's really cool to be able to uh i guess uh make you know uh a networking attempt with someone in the psychology space. So, um, Amy, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thanks for being here. And I'm really excited for the conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for the introduction. (laughs) Um, 
So yeah, so my name's Amy Turk and I am a therapist in private practice and my office is located in downtown Kirkwood. However, I, I've definitely worked in treatment settings before going into private practice. Um, I started out working in <clears throat> um, vocational rehabilitation with a population of um, people who would experience severe and persistent mental illness. Um, so there, the most common diagnoses were bipolar and schizophrenia. And then um, I ventured into uh, eating disorder treatment um, and then substance abuse treatment before uh, going into private practice. Okay. And now in private practice, um, I focus primarily on anxiety and depression, but also... Um, you know, I work with teens and adults and help people with um, just regular, you know, navigating everyday regular life stuff um, when anxiety and depression are showing up on top of it. So um, the most common modalities I use in my practice are CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of your standard talk therapy, basically huh. identifying <clears throat> negative thought patterns. And then trying to reframe them and also containing overthinking with mindfulness. Um, that can be a part of CBT, although I do um, a lot of mindfulness just on its own for, for a variety of things, primarily overthinking. And then EMDR. So um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about that, but EMDR is when the negative thought patterns have um, been going on for so long. Oftentimes, uh, they may have um, they may have begun through traumatic experiences, and now they're going to be more resistant to just the regular talk therapy. They're uh, harder to process through just with talk therapy alone, and that's where EMDR can come in and and help with that. So, and that's kind of a nutshell, yeah. <laughs> And <clears throat> you published a book. Talk about that oh, for yes. a little bit. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So, <laughs> of course. So yeah, <clears throat> substance, substance abuse and addiction, um, definitely I, I kind of see as a symptom of uh, anxiety and depression. And so that's something that, that I also do um, specialize in. And my book is titled Alcohol Made Me Do It. Um, why people act out of character when they drink and how to stop. And in there, I do share a lot of my own personal experiences with um, managing my own mental health and and my own addiction struggles as well. Right on. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a great read. I read it uh, and I appreciate you giving me that book, honestly. Um, where can you where can you buy that? So that's on Amazon and okay. you can order the hard copy or Kindle. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I had to get you in there from uh, an author standpoint because it's it's cool to uh, be able to have a therapist who has written literature. I think it takes a lot of courage to do that, especially with, um, you know, because psychology is such an interesting field because uh, with your certifications and your, I guess, degrees and practices. Um, I, I 
would find you a very qualified person. And I think that um, it, it necessarily doesn't matter. I mean, certifications do matter. Degrees do matter, like doctoral degrees and like those sorts of things. But I really do think uh, a great therapist, because I've had many therapists in my life, depends on the personality of the of um, the person administering the care. I think it takes a really special uh, person with special character to become like a therapist like yourself. So what kind of got you into this space? You know, that's such a good question. Um, you know, honestly, now that I'm here and I look back and, you know, I have that benefit of hindsight, um, you know, I definitely feel like this was always where I was meant to end up. And I think I always was gravitating towards this, even from the very beginning as a child. However, when I grew up, um, you know, so I was born in 1976, grew up in the 80s, went to, you know, high school and college in the 90s. And that was before, you know, therapist or going to therapy was, uh, I mean, it definitely wasn't mainstream and it right. really wasn't even something that you heard about. Um, or if you did, it was, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, um, it was highly stigmatized. So I, I didn't really have the opportunity as a kid, I think, to um, explore or even contemplate this as a possible career outcome. Um, so, you know, I did start out my career in teaching and, you know, I think I was definitely drawn towards working with people and helping people. And my mom was a teacher, so that kind of made sense. Um, but then, yeah, kind of as I grew and, um, you know, began to struggle as an adult more and more with anxiety that I've always had, um, you know, I had to really do a lot to uh, figure out how to manage that for myself. And then I became passionate about, you know, helping people in that way. So I went back to school and now here I am. And what are your certifications and, I guess, advanced qualifications? So um, I do have a master's degree in counseling, and then I have my LPC, so I'm a licensed professional counselor, and that's a two-year process after graduating with your master's in counseling where mm -hmm. um, you have to be highly supervised and your training really continues, but as you're in the field, um, working and experiencing it in that way. Right on, right on. Um, so when I ask this question, this is not a critique of any sorts. So what made you want to just get the master's instead of like trying to, you know, become a doctor? Cause I, I asked this question because I feel like there's such like a enhanced focus nowadays on like being a doctor in all the fields, not even just psychology, just like in every field that you kind of look at now, everything you have to have a doctorate to like have this sort of elevated platform of criteria. So what made you want to just get the master's and not the doctorate? And I'll kind of make a point after you answer the question, but I'm, I'm curious on your perspective on that. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So <clears throat> I think there's like a couple, there's definitely a couple factors for me personally with that. 
So since I was coming into the field later in life, you know, um, I, I wasn't um, really able to be in school for such an extended period of time again. Um, so that's part of it. But also over the course of my career and my careers and just my life as a working person, um, I have found that the most valuable education for me personally is experiential. So through working, um, a lot of the training I got as a teacher um, paled in comparison to what I needed to know and what I then learned actually being in the job and doing the job of teaching. And, you know, I, I do love to learn. I love being a student. I think, you know, if student was a career, that would, <laughs> that would be the one I would really choose. So, you know, I think if I was younger, like if I was growing up today and was, you know, identifying um, psychology or therapy as my, <clears throat> my end point earlier on, um, you know, it might have been different. I might well have decided to go that route. Um, but yeah, basically here I am with, with what I got. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. And the reason I ask that is because I've, I've worked with doctors, um, in psychology as therapists. Um, and I will say, uh, and I'm not even just doing this to, uh, I guess like, I'm saying this with all honesty and transparency. You are the best therapist I've had in my life uh, because you just have that warm, empathetic energy about you. And I've had doctors like as therapists and they haven't necessarily been the most helpful for me. So, you know, that's why I asked that question because it's not necessarily you have to have a doctorate to necessarily be more qualified or be a better therapist than, you know, people with just, you know, the master's degree. I think people like you are the true embodiment of, I got a master's degree. I got these certifications. I know what I'm doing. I know how to administer it. And I have the personality and the character and the empathy to be amazing at my role, like in, and, and my purpose. So no, I think that's, that's incredible. And I think we, your favorite certification from what I've experienced is EMDR. And when I first walked in your office, I remember, I remember talking and I was just like, all right, fuck all the, like the talk therapy. I just want to like hammer into EMDR. And then you're like, well, like let's, let's get a little background first and then we can dive in. And we've kind of like stepped back doing more of the talk therapy stuff, which, uh, I, I've really enjoyed that perspective now, uh, so I guess like my question is like maybe for the audience, like what is EMDR? What is the purpose of EMDR? What are the benefits of EMDR and how have you integrated it into your practice um, in a more detailed manner? Yeah. So, you know, I, I really do. You're correct. I really do love EMDR and I'm so glad that I was able to get trained in that and that I now can <clears throat> practice that with my clients. So EMDR is, is a modality that's very helpful when negative thought patterns have been so internalized and they've existed for so long that now they're deeply ingrained to the point where 
we really look out at our life and everything that's happening around us through the lens of the negative belief. And they're essentially impervious to reframing. So you could tell yourself all day long, that person that's giving me like a frustrated look who I've never met before, who I'm just now passing on the street, um, you know, they've probably had their own bad day or maybe, you know, that's how their face always is in a resting position or, you know, you could do it all day long and there's going to be that default deep sense that, no, they're mad at me. I must have done something to offend them or my mere existence must be offensive somehow. And you just can't shake that deep-seated belief. And EMDR, it comes in and it allows us access to information that our traumatized brain rejects and pushes off because it's not going to keep us safe. So when we have deep-seated beliefs like, you know, um, you know, I am not worthy, I am not good enough, um, you know, I am not pleasing to those around me, we're going to the reason we have that is because we had to operate that way to keep ourselves safe at some point. And now we're convinced that to keep ourselves safe, we have to always be thinking of things that way so we can get out ahead of it and protect ourselves. Well, how can I be more pleasing or how can I be good enough? And you're constantly trying to think of what can I do? How could this be my fault? It's to protect you. But this is maladaptive because it's not keeping us safe. It's not protecting us. It's making us misinterpret our environment and feel bad about ourselves all the time. Um, so when we're doing that, we're also, our brain is rejecting any information when people tell us, hey, you're great. I really enjoy your company. You know, X, Y, Z, all the positives, your brain just can't even accept it, can't take it in. What EMDR does is it kind of, it dislodges the negative belief enough and allows in some of this other information that our brain has been rejecting for so long. And it allows us to kind of create a more balanced view of ourselves and the world around us. And it does this by allowing the two sides of the brain to communicate more freely with each other. The right side of the brain has access to some of this buried, rejected information. And the left side of the brain is the part of the brain that we use to think, to talk. Um, that's the part we're using in just regular talk therapy alone. We need the two sides to work together so that we can rebalance um, the way that we, you know, the things that we believe about ourselves and the world around us. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that. What um, do you use EMDR on all your patients, or would you say it's maybe half your patients? Like, because I know that you really love using the modality. Are all your patients usually open to that? I was seeking that out, so it's different for me probably than maybe some other of your clients, just because people don't really know EMDR from maybe besides the surface level where I was actually seeking that out. So finding you was, was kind of easier for me. Um, to, is this a, is this a modality that I guess people know about already or do you kind of just 
make that um, introduce that into conversation where you're like, hey, can we try this and see, you know, where your where your patients are at with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it really can be all across the board. Um, a lot of people do know about EMDR and seek me out like you did specifically for that. So then, you know, um, we just go right away from there. Um, you know, for other people, it'll really be, you know, we'll we'll start out with just getting to know each other. I'll get to know their history. Um, we'll talk about, you know, what's causing them distress. And, you know, we'll usually go the CBT route where we try to just together discuss through some of the um, anxiety provoking thoughts. And then if, you know, it's turning out or really looking like that's not working and we kind of keep hitting up against the same blocks and coming back to the same things where it's like as much as we try to look at it from a different angle, you know, figure out where did this come from? Why why do I think like this? Okay, you know, is it <clears throat> is it necessary now? to use that same thinking now that I'm in, you know, a different place in my life. If all of that is not providing relief, then, you know, I feel like EMDR is a good place to go from there. And then, you know, for people who haven't heard of EMDR, um, you know, when I describe it, a lot of times um, people are very open to the idea and, you know, we'll, we'll do it. And it, and it does provide relief um, in most cases. Sometimes, though, you know, when I describe it, people feel a little uncomfortable. They're not sure um, how they feel about it. And there, you know, we, we just kind of do, I always will follow the client's lead on what they think is going to be beneficial or helpful to them. Um, occasionally, it does happen, too, where people will be nervous about EMDR because EMDR has been around for a long time and it's actually evolved a lot over the course of that time. And in the very initial versions of EMDR, um, you know, it, it was developed specifically for trauma. Um, and so when people think of trauma, they often think of, you know, a, a very dramatic incident like uh, an assault or an act of extreme violence or a natural disaster. Um, but more and more, we're really realizing in the field of psychology that a lot of people have experienced what we call complex trauma, which is trauma that happens over um, a long uh, a long period of time and results in the individual really uh, developing thought patterns that are highly critical. Um, and there, you know, that that's the type of client primarily whom I will use EMDR with. But when they think, oh, it's for trauma, I was, you know, I've never been shot or, you know, it, it's it's kind of um, talking through that, which again, it's, it's up to the person's comfort level and how it makes sense for them to see their experience. Some people, you know, um, I guess will get nervous that if we start EMDR and it's to treat trauma, it's going to take me into the heart of some memories that are very disturbing and I don't want to experience that. But in fact, as EMDR has evolved, we've gone completely away from that. And what we're truly 
bringing in is more of those positive things that our traumatized brain rejects. So we're not bringing in the disturbing details of the trauma. We're bringing in everything that then our brain rejects supposedly to keep us safe that are the positive things that could help us feel better about ourselves and less critical of ourselves. Right on. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so my question from stemming from that is, do you, so you talk about not wanting to bring in the trauma details into the situation or the therapy session with EMDR. So I won't give away, obviously, our sessions in detail, but I've brought in some traumatic kind of moments or experiences into our therapy sessions with EMDR. <clears throat> do you think sometimes depending on the person that bringing in that traumatic experience or that detail can actually somewhat be beneficial because for me, and this is just me, this isn't advice for anyone else, but like I brought in now granted my mindset's a lot different than other people, but I've brought in some traumatic details and experiences to you. And I feel like that's actually really helped uh, get to the core or the root of my limiting beliefs or my subconscious pain that we were able to bring out and then, you know, heal that accordingly to have a positive affirmation or positive mindset towards said traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think ultimately to heal, um, from the traumatic events, um, you know, we do, have to be able to look at them again, but in a broader context now. So in the full context of, you know, me as uh, the victim in that experience was really taking in, you know, very specific information and came away with specific thoughts and beliefs. But there's a lot more information that surrounds that that is mitigating for us and our self-concept and um, what we now believe about ourselves to be true. So when we do go back to those things um, that were traumatic, we want that broader context of the information that this wasn't my fault. There was nothing more I could have done. I was just trying to survive the best I could. Um, And I think, you know, that's, that's a delicate balance that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of strength. And I think, you know, sometimes the idea of having to go back to the negative at all without fully understanding how it with EMDR, we're really meaning to bring in all of that other information too. It's, it can be very scary. And I understand that completely. Yeah. Yeah. That can, yeah, it can be a lot. I think, yeah, my mindset's just different. Like I, I think just with my experience in the past with uh, cancer and those sorts of things, uh, my mind's a little bit different. I just kind of like dive in uh, head first into about anything, which I've, I've worked on actually with you on not doing that all the time. Uh, so yeah, thank you for, for explaining that. And so your, so one of the things that I get told or asked about or things when I talk about going to therapy is, you know, being a male. 
in therapy is uh, very unique from from what I've heard. All right, so like your clientele demographic, are you able to kind of share like what your demographic is in terms of like percentages of like gender or like age? Like who, what like groups are you working with specifically that is maybe more than others? I guess like what is your single male demographic maybe what's your couple demographic and what's your single like female demographic yeah so you know um i'm gonna roughly estimate it on the fly here but i would say that you know um in single male would we include divorced males yes so i guess like what i'm trying to ask is what is your age demographic in terms of, you know, maybe like millennials or like Gen Z or Gen X, you know, between the ages of like 20 to, you know, 40, like what's kind of your demographic that you work with? Um, and then like, yeah, in terms of, you know, percentage of females that you work with, percentage of males that you work with, because I'm interested to, you know, hear how, what the percentage of males is that you work with that are not like couples like we can maybe just leave the couples part out of it. What's like your uh, ratio of like women versus men in therapy? Yeah. So I would say um, it's probably about 40, 60. So 40 male, 60 oh, wow. percent female. That's actually, I thought it was going to be way less. I thought it was going to be like 80, 20 for oh, female. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you work with you're working with a decent amount of males then. So that's a, that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, so what does that male demographic look like? So, um, I would say that of the males that I work with, um, probably, um, mm, 40% of those are specifically working on, um, like addiction recovery, uh, stuff. So, cause that is a specialty of mine. Um, and then, um, I do, I do definitely, um, provide couples counseling. And then also I work with, um, some males that have come in on their own trying to navigate through that, the divorce process. So mm. there's that. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I would say, though, that all of my male clients are over 30, except for the teens that I see um, who are male. And then you really would be, I think, the one male client I have under 30. Wow. But yeah. like over the age of like a teenager. Over the age of teenager. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I didn't realize that. So you're kind of working with an older demographic and then like the kid demographic. Uh, but you're, I mean, still working with a good ratio of female to male uh, clients. And I know you, so you talk about like addiction and those sorts of things. Obviously, that's just like your specialty. What, I guess, um, if I can ask this question, obviously, like, you know, you have your rules and regulations they have to abide by. So I want to respect that. But I guess like when you have people that come in, what is like the biggest, so it sounds like divorced men. So obviously like broken relationships um, and then you work with couples. So like, what do you usually come across a lot in terms of like what men have like addiction 
addictions from or like root cause addiction, generally speaking? Like what is, I guess, the issues that you're seeing consistently, like with your, with your clients? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, emotionally unavailable or neglectful parents, um, I definitely see, uh, you know, a lot of people, so a lot of people who were perhaps not supported in identifying and regulating emotions the way ideally we would need to be hmm. um, growing up, that that's definitely something. Um, a lot of perfectionism. So a lot of people, <laughs> again, back to those core beliefs, you know, if, if I'm not perfect, then I'm total, then I'm a total failure. Um, feeling like they need to be working and productive all the time or they don't have any worth as a, as a human or person. Um, that's a big source of anxiety for a lot of people, both male and female, honestly, because I think the perfectionism is something that is very prevalent in female, in my female clients. Um, <clears throat> and let's see. Um, you know, I, I definitely think, I know this is kind of a hot topic right now, but, you know, um, people self-diagnosing themselves uh, as neurodivergent, but, you know, I think it is definitely something that I see with my clients that are in their 30s or 40s that, you know, their whole life they've just kind of felt off or different or excluded and, just assumed that it was something wrong with them. And now that, you know, there's so much more information flowing about neurodivergence and how it's more prevalent than we've previously understood, you know, people trying to figure that out, like maybe I've been undiagnosed neurodivergent my whole life and I've been blaming myself for things um, that are due to just the way I was wired you know, mm -hmm. and that that's okay. There's other people like that and that our society and <clears throat> our systems, you know, aren't optimally set up for, for people like that. And so, wow, how hard has that been for me? And I've been blaming myself this whole time for that. So that, that's definitely something that I talk with, um, with people about. Yeah. Do you, do you see that issue more with, I guess like the kids demographic that you work with, or do you still see that, you know, with people, you know, over the age of, of 30? Um, I definitely work with <clears throat> several teen clients who have ADHD and they've been diagnosed, but, um, you know, it, it was caught and diagnosed and treated early on. And yet still, mm. it's incredibly challenging to navigate through school with ADHD, even medicated. So a lot of support around that because, again, you know, things are a lot harder. Um, and then even if, you know, you are diagnosed, you have a 504 or an IEP and you're medicated, people still think like, why can't you do this? Or why is this so hard for you? And so it's really important to try to protect kids' self-esteem. Um, again, so they're not thinking like, gosh, there's something seriously wrong with me and I'm defective when it's, you know, 
no, your brain works differently and things just aren't set up optimally for you. So we have to do the best we can, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, you know, right. kind of thing. That makes sense. Yeah. Are you able to maybe pinpoint what the root causes of like ADHD and those sorts <clears throat> of kind of neurodivergent, you know, uh, roots come from? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could, honestly. Um, I know there's a lot of varying information and research and opinions out there on this. Um, I, I mean, I definitely do believe there's so much about the brain that we don't yet understand. You know, I do believe that everybody is you know, kind of born with their unique, uh, wiring, so to speak. But, you know, I mean, I think it's hard to tell it's that eternal nurture versus nature, nurture, mm -hmm. nature debate. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, the way that we support kids, the way that we, um, you know, guide kids, teach kids, even from a super early age is having, it has a, you know, a bigger impact, I think, than historically people were able to appreciate. So it's just kind of hard to flesh all that out at this point, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just think a lot of overstimulation happens at a young age now. I mean, you know, you get a kid that's, you know, <laughs> getting thrown into kind of an iPad life like pretty early on. Uh, and, and I'm glad that I never really had that life growing up. Uh, I, I mean, even when I was sick and played video games, like that wasn't glued to, to that. I was still playing sports, you know, still having friends, like going outside and like all those. Yeah, I feel like my, char my childhood was normal compared to most childhoods nowadays. So I'm, I'm, I am grateful for that. But I was, yeah, I was just curious on the root of it in terms of, you know, neurodivergence and, you know, where do you think it stems from? Cause it just seems like kind of a commonality, uh, with younger kids getting diagnosed like that. Um, but so you work with, uh, divorced men as well, from what I heard, and you work with couples. What are your thoughts on, I guess, like the dating atmosphere right now? And just like your thoughts on, people trying to find their partner and navigate to, to meet their partner and just kind of like all those, you know, different nuances. Like what are, what are your thoughts on just dating in general? Yeah. Well, I've definitely heard a lot about the online dating scene from many of my clients and, um, like me. Yes. But yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I feel like it sounds incredibly overwhelming, yeah. especially for people with a lot of anxiety and a tendency towards, you know, self-doubt or self-criticism, because it sounds like there's so many options and people will start kind of conversations or expressing interest and feel like things are going away. And then get ghosted and then they're left wondering, was it me or, and, hmm. you know, I think 
it sounds to me as if, and I guess this is how it would make sense to approach it, but people are simultaneously talking to and going out with a lot of people, but then it's hard to attach to one person if you're constantly kind of getting drawn to or distracted by others. And it, it definitely sounds uh, very different from, you know, I'm much older and, you know, none of this was even close to being around when back when I was, you know, at that dating phase of my life. And um, yeah, it, it just, I don't, I honestly am at a loss. It, it I, th- I feel like it would be terrible for me personally, the way. That <laughs> 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 yeah, that, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But in our modern day life right now, everybody's so busy. And, you know, how are you going to come into contact uh, with potential dating prospects? You know, at least the online dating kind of opens things up. Yeah. But maybe it opens up so far that it's too far. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's 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 super uh enlightening working with you because we talked about uh navigating your own like social media presence to like find, you know, your partner. And I think you make a really good point about like utilizing instead of a dating app where you know, it can come off pretty inauthentic or ingenuine with with people. Um, finding people that I don't know that you just really enjoy uh, consuming, like social media wise, like going on Instagram or going on TikTok or whatever, and like finding you know things that you enjoy, and then finding people that also enjoy those things. So whether it's like looking at yoga, Pilates, art, you know, sports, uh, like they're, you know, gaming possibilities are endless. And like, you just look at like hashtags and then you look at like locations, like in your area, then you look at like, you can almost use social media as like a a dating app in a sense, because like you can kind of look people up and find, you know, common interests that, you know, you enjoy and you want someone else you know, to enjoy at the same time, because it's good to have standards and it's good to have preferences. I don't think, I think part of the issue is like, we always have to be like super inclusive of everything or, you know, you can't have preferences like now because of like that whole like inclusive kind of narrative or stigma that we're pushing on people. So it's like, oh, if I have preferences, like I'm labeled as like, a closed-minded person. No, it's just like, I enjoy going to like music festivals or raves. So like, I kind of want someone to compliment that and be able to enjoy that experience. Cause I want to have a partner that I can go to music festivals with. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So, uh, like using your phone as like a source of, of dating, I think is a pretty cool concept that you even introduced to me recently. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, I think, yeah, dating is is interesting nowadays for sure because you have like this myriad of of options. Um, but I think people don't heal a lot of their stuff, and they just look for dating to heal that for them. So I guess how do people? So like my thing is, I'm like, go 
figure yourself out first. But then again, like there are going to be things that pop up in a relationship that you kind of have to just figure out when you get into a relationship. So what's kind of the um, compromise that I think people need to start making with themselves with dating in terms of maybe expectations or in terms of like self-talk or in terms of uh, just finding their person? Like what, what are your thoughts on people trying to, I guess, figure themselves out, but then healing themselves before dating, but then also working through that healing with, you know, a partner as well. What are your thoughts? If that question makes sense. Oh, it totally does. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think we talked about perfectionism earlier and I think that, you know, the perfectionism phenomenon is quite widespread. Um, and it, and it kind of applies to not only ourselves, but just life. Um, so people, you know, we're, we're also very much into instant gratification again, I think because we're so busy, we're so stressed out, we're so overstimulated that then when we have a minute to have fun or let our hair down, we just want those instant, you know, good vibes. Um, (laughs) and I mean, I, I, I get that, but, um, you know, I think nothing is perfect. Life definitely isn't perfect. No person is perfect. And I think sometimes, you know, we all think, um, I want to get myself to like this good place and then find this person that's in their really good place. And then we'll each like, we'll just like perfectly, (laughs) we'll perfectly compliment each other and it's going to be great. But you know, in my experience working with couples and just my experience as an older married person, um, you know, life is a journey and we're constantly learning about ourselves and evolving and changing. And um, when things get really hard and stressful, like I know a lot of my couples clients have young kids, which is a really... Um, you know, I mean, it's a very labor-intensive part of life, especially if both partners are also working stressful jobs, um, you know, you kind of go into survival mode um, in periods like that. And then you're not at your best. Your couple's not at your best. You don't have much patience. So I guess my idea of what we need more of in like dating and even marriage these days is this idea of a successful relationship being like an, a work in progress at all times. And, you know, we're not going to be perfect. Our couple's not going to be perfect. The other person's not going to be perfect. And that's actually the way it's kind of designed to be or supposed to be. That's just the way that it is, I guess. And to accept that and to not feel like, gosh, if I'm so unhappy right now in this relationship, I just need to get out. Um, you know, which I think uh, along with that instant gratification piece, um, I kind of see, I feel like I kind of see a lot of both with dating and with marriages ending these days. Yeah. Yeah. I think you make a really good point. Uh, being, So obviously I don't know the, the marriage aspect just because, you know, I'm a single male, but I think what I struggle with the most is my self talk with, uh, 
I guess just dating and, and worthiness around the like financial stability or uh, being able to provide more for a woman. I guess that's like the toughest thing right now. And also like still having the independence and freedom or like giving independence and freedom at the same time. Um, and I think part of that is propelled through these dating coaches that I see on social media that are um, no matter, it doesn't really matter the gender, it could be a guy or a girl, but like there are these like single like social media influencer types that like give out probably the stupidest advice and people really eat it up, which is a little alarming. And it's like people that don't have any degree in psychology or any degree on human thinking or the human psyche, uh, human mindset. And they're giving advice on one of the most complex natures humanity has. And that is dating and relationships because we're not animals like animals when they date and they mate and they like basically, you know, have this divine union, it's different because like there's that lack of like emotional intelligence where like humans, we have this emotional intelligence and we have like these wide range of even types of relationships uh, with, you know, monogamy, non-monogamy, like polyamory, like there are so many different relationships and it's so complicated so it's like hard to just say like oh you know this guy needs to like look like this make this provide this have you know these qualities and characteristics and then you know vice versa to a woman too the expectations of women like the age has to be this they have to look like this they have to act like this they have to listen to you like this they they have to speak like this and it's just um I don't know. It's, I think it's such a, it's a lot of pressure, I think, for people because they, yeah, they feel like they have to be perfect. And, you know, where did, I feel like the expectations have been more normalized over like the past couple of years, but where do you think this all stemmed from? Like it started somewhere, the root started somewhere. And I'm curious on where you think it started just because you see patients that, are either going through this, you know, as a couple or going through this separated from someone. So like, where do you think the root of this all started? Yeah. So the root of like people feeling like they need to be perfect or feeling yeah. like their partner needs to be perfect. Uh, I guess both, I guess both. Cause it, it's yeah. kind of, it kind of changes. Like sometimes people just don't think they're worthy enough cause they don't think they're perfect. But then some people are like, oh, well, that person wasn't perfect or like that person didn't give me like this initial feeling like right off the bat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, it is a good question. I I mean, I guess I wouldn't be shocked. I feel like, you know, with pressures that people have experienced in the past, um, you know, kind of like... Uh, with, I think of women, like for, for me, when I was growing up, um, there was like an incredible amount of pressure on women to look a very, you know, just a very specific way. Um, and you know, that was media. Um, I feel like now with social media, 
you know, we're so inundated and we're seeing now not just models or advertisements, but, you know, supposedly like real life people and they're all kind of feeding us messages. Um, And, you know, social media, even though it's more like quote unquote real people, it's not real life, you know, because people are, you know, they're putting out a, a highly curated version of themselves. So I don't know. I, I kind of wonder about that if maybe collectively now we've all just decided that we want things to be quick. We want things to be easy. We want things to be fun. And that's it. We don't have time for anything else. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It's a mystery. Yeah, it is. It is a mystery. And I think people think they're entitled to an easy relationship that comes with just like complications and complexities because that's just the human the human mind the human soul and like the human emotion like that's just the truth people aren't one-dimensional people are three-dimensional people are four-dimensional people are even five-dimensional they're 13 dimensions or 12 dimensions in this, you know, ethereal realm that we live in. So with that dimension amount comes complexity. So you have just an elaborate life that you've lived, but then someone else has also lived an elaborate life with a lot of traumas and programmings and all these different factors that create thoughts and feelings and words, actions, and habits. So I think bringing that to the table, you kind of need to expect that you have to have empathy with that person and you got to figure out, you know, where is the boundary or where's the line that I have to draw for myself. And I think that might be another issue is we set these boundaries, but sometimes they're not logical. Sometimes they're a little one-sided. Like I get that you want to set boundaries for yourself, but sometimes it's like you got to open up to people and then you also got to let people open up to you or like let you or let them, you have to let them in. Um, yeah. Find some issues like with, with boundaries and those sorts of things with people. Like they're just kind of walled up pretty quickly. Um, you mean in the context of therapy or just from what I observe out in, you know, just uh, everyday life all around us? Yeah, everyday life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It even goes beyond just, yeah, even just dating just in general. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's interesting because I am a mom to two teenagers, but, you know, obviously developmentally they're in a, in a different place, but, um, I think about boundaries and I don't know, I guess I'm trying to think of if I've seen them change over the course of time. I think that it can be, well, maybe they, I mean, if you think about the stuff that everybody's now putting out on social media, I guess that's 
kind of like boundaries coming down in a way, because a lot of things that people, personal stuff or just silly stuff, you know, people in their pajamas, people this and that going, <laughs> you know, out on the internet for everybody to see. I mean, I guess in that sense, boundaries have come down, I suppose. But mm. again, it's a highly curated, everybody gets to choose specifically what they put out there. And are they putting out their whole selves? Probably not, you know, no. maybe a version of themselves. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which could be confusing because if you get so used to doing that, then how are you going to switch back and forth between the two? Like now I'm going to be authentic, real, full me. Now I'm going to be the me that's highly curated I mean, that would be confusing, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's parenting like for you in this generation and like in this time period that we live in? Like, do you find it difficult at times or do you find or do you think that it's a little overdramatic? Like because, you know, people talk about, oh, this this generation has no social skills or like this generation lacks this or that or whatever. Um, but I think being a teenager is a lot harder than when I was a teenager. And I say that because you don't have to worry about your high school bully or your grade school bully. Now you got to worry about that. And then you got to worry about comparing yourself to some kid like in, you know, you live in New York, they're like in California and they have like all this clout and they have all, you know, these great things going for themselves. And you're the same age, like at, you know, 12. And it's just, it's crazy because like now it's not the comparison in your own town. You have comparisons halfway across the world too with other people like in your face. So what's it like being a parent to teenagers nowadays? You know, I, I, I feel like for me personally, it's, um, it's a great time to be a parent of a teenager because you know, I think if we go back to when I was growing up, um, you know, parents really, you know, they wanted, they wanted to see kids do a certain thing in a certain way, follow a certain path. And if they didn't do that, there was a lot of anxiety. The parents felt like they were failing. They made the kids feel like, you know, they were failing. And now, you know, I feel like with the more mainstream discussions that we have on psychology and, you know, child development, parenting, mental health, um, you know, I feel like I'm able to, you know, really manage my own anxiety when it comes to my kids, because of course I worry about them all the time. I think you're right. I think, you know, growing up is hard, but I feel like growing up in this day and age is, is also, you know, extra hard in some ways. Yeah. But, you know, I, I feel like we're more and more understanding that, yeah, I mean, as a parent, you're on your journey, your child is on their journey, you're here to support them and guide them, but you're not here to control everything about what happens to them because you can't, you know? Yeah. And in that way, I feel like it's it's kind of liberating compared to maybe how people experienced parenting and specifically parenting teenagers in the past. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, there's 
there's there's more out there to to grab your attention than when I was a, a teenager growing up, and there's there's nothing wrong with that because you know if I think if you have the right support system and the right parents around you, it's easy to not get caught up in that. Um, I guess you know being a teenager is always I don't know. You're always going to rebel. You're you're going to want to rebel against your parents in some regard, I feel like. Uh, yeah. So it's Definitely. like, it's just kind of like you just got to let them experience life and let them make mistakes and then find solutions uh, to their mistakes. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, Cooper, I actually probably do need to get going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you uh, hopping on. I guess like what is maybe your last bit of advice around therapy just for anyone that's thinking about doing it, uh, listening to this show, thinking about doing therapy, but they don't know how to take that first step. What's your advice for those people so we can get them in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it obviously has to feel like something that is comfortable. Um, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but when, you know, that not sure feeling or, uh, you know, extra anxiety feeling comes in around it, um, we want to try to bring that down as much as we can. So I would recommend for people who are considering it, but also kind of on the fence or nervous to, you know, look at psychology today, um, you know, ask friends and family for referrals and to craft up kind of a short, but um, kind of like an introductory email of what you're looking for or, you know, what it is that you're, you're hoping for and, you know, kind of send it out to maybe several people. And then, you know, when you hear back, um, don't, don't be nervous about asking for maybe an introductory phone call. Cause it might be easier just to kind of take it bit by bit to break that ice and to get to know somebody a little bit, um, you know, as opposed to showing up to someone's office blindly and, you know, having an hour long session where you're bearing your soul to a stranger, you know, some people that's fine right. and that's great. But, you know, you can definitely take it step by step, baby steps. And, um, you know, it has it, listen to yourself and what feels good for you. And therapists, we're here to support you. Uh, we definitely understand, you know, anxiety about coming in and about meeting new people. And, you know, that's okay. You can just take it at your pace, take it at your comfort level, and don't be afraid to take baby steps towards it if you need to. Right on. Um, last thing, what, uh, where can we find you in terms of social media presence or whatever? Like, how can people just find you or your content? Or Because we talked about your book. We know that's on Amazon. If you want to talk about that title again for, for people to... I guess be re-acknowledged on uh, what, yeah, where can, where can we find you so we can consume your, your work? Yes. Well, 
I'm glad you asked. So <laughs> my my website is amyturkcounseling.com. And then I do also have a TikTok account, a counseling TikTok account. It's Amy Turk Counseling on TikTok. Um, and then my book is um, Alcohol Made Me Do It, Why People Act Out of Character When They Drink and How to Stop. And you can find that on Amazon. Right on. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, definitely we'll have to have you on again at some point in time. Talk about maybe dating or something else uh, along the lines of psychology. I think that would also be just really fun. And yeah, so thank you so much and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me. You too, Cooper.